This evening I'd like to speak about the ecology of compassion, the ecology of compassion. And this is the interrelationship between our inner world and our outer world. It's said that after the Buddha's enlightenment under the great Bodhi tree 2,600 years ago, he profoundly opened and understood and realized the Four Noble Truths. He realized the truth of suffering. The first noble truth is, there is the truth of suffering. So it wasn't denied, it was open to. He realized and understood the cause of suffering, the cessation of all suffering, and he held the knowledge of how to develop the path that leads to the end of suffering. As the Buddha calls it, the advancement of the holy life, the ceasing, the stilling, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to nibbana, or as we, we hear it in the West, nirvana. So it's said that even with this rare and precious understanding, he was reluctant to offer these understandings, this truth, to those around him because he said, and he thought, listeners without direct experience would be stuck in conceptualizations and would misunderstand what was said. He thought people really needed to actually practice, not just to understand in theory. To make a long story short, he was very influenced by beings that came to him and asked him to open, to uh, be open to the possibility of offering the Dharma or the way things are to the world. He said that these beings, he mentioned that these beings that approached him said that there are beings with but little dust in their eyes who would be able to practice and to understand. So this is what we are training in and benefiting from today, 2,600 years after the enlightenment of the Buddha. We're riding on that uh, current of compassion that he had for all beings. And it's said that he offered this teaching because of compassion, because he had great compassion for all beings. In an old journal, I found a passage where I had written about a feeling I was having, an ever-present feeling of quiet desperation. I, don't, I haven't written very many journals in my life. I tend to write things and then look at them and wonder, what, what did I mean by this anyway, you know? Um, but this, this uh, little journal that I had, I, somehow I found it. Uh, years later, and it talked about this quiet desperation that I had about life and about knowing, understanding more deeply about life. Not just because somebody told me some great story or helped me understand something theoretically or gave me something to read, and then I had this aha moment, but I wanted to understand life experientially. I wanted to understand it through my own body, my own mind. So Manindraji, my teacher at that time, he translated this quiet desperation that I had to the spiritual urgency. And I spoke about spiritual urgency the other evening as samvega. The Pali word for it is samvega. An urgency to be released from this round of suffering, an urgency to know the truth so that there can be that uh, truth that releases one from the suffering. So I asked him at that time, what is the meaning of my life? This was in my mid-twenties when I had met him. What's the reason for my living, for my being alive? And he was very succinct and very short. And he said, the reason for your living, for your being born into this life, is to develop compassion and wisdom. Both of those. To develop compassion and wisdom. 
This is the meaning of your life. And then to use those qualities to help others while at the same time freeing my own heart. In some Buddhist traditions, these two qualities, wisdom and compassion, are called the two wings, the two great wings of the Dharma. Both are equally important to strengthen and serve one another so that each one becomes strong. We really need these two great wings to be strong in our lives as Dharma practitioners so that this great bird of freedom can fly. So the Dhamma, you hear that word from us a lot, or the Dharma as it's called more in many traditions, but in the Theravada tradition it's Dhamma. This is the truth of how life is the ability for our minds and hearts to experience very intimately, very sensitively within ourselves the unfolding of nature, the unfolding of how life is in this body, in this mind continuum, and then see that in the same way that others are unfolding in their own lives. So it's this natural unfolding of the deepest truths of life, This is what the Dhamma could mean. Not easy to open to and to accept sometimes. And that's why we need the training that we're undergoing here. We use the word nature a lot instead of, um, you know, not self. Because when we see all these things unfolding, we can understand that this is nature unfolding. There are causes and conditions that make these kinds of effects and results. And we're, we're seeing them happen, these systems, these processes happen, happen moment by moment when we're being here in our practice. So what we're opening to here is nature. And we're learning how to open to it in its rawest form, in this body, in this mind. So we have these very rare conditions that are very precious where we can have quiet and stillness in this outer environment, relative solitude, a lessening of distraction. And so this inner environment can be stiller. So that's why we ask you to be with yourselves because when we connect with one another in any way, it really disturbs the, the ever-deepening quiet that can happen in this kind of environment. So we open to what's going on beneath that outer layer of busyness, where we're not needing to connect with with life. Everything's brought forth for us as much as possible so that we, we can just do our work by looking inwardly, connecting this inner life with the outer life, and uh, really seeing with deep, deep simplicity, what's really going on. We open to the fact of how vulnerable we are as human beings. Of course, we open to a lot of beautiful experiences. I don't want to diminish that. But there's also a lot of vulnerability we open to. And so it's really necessary. There's a lot that the staff here, uh, all of those who support us, and the teachers that are always here to guide these courses, there's a lot to hold just energetically what's going on in, this, in ourselves because we become so vulnerable. For one thing, there's this constant changing nature of things all around us. And then that's always changing. And so this inner kind of response or sometimes reactivity of greed or hatred in its many different forms to the outer conditions. We're born into this world of great vulnerability and that's one of the truths that we begin to discover. This rawness of life and it's not easy to do this. There's somewhere in the precious scriptures that says uh, something like, Um, we could conquer all the armies of the world a lot more easily than we can actually conquer ourselves. 
to really face ourselves and what's going on in this body-mind continuum, especially in the mind, is really, really challenging. So all of you are really uh, doing wonderfully, actually, that you're actually still here. (laughs) And you come to the Dharma talks and hear all about these, you know, really um, challenging things that we open to in practice, and you take it in, and you apply the, um, the guidelines that we've, we offer to you so that you can just open more and more deeply to what's going on. So conditions at every level we find are in flux. You know this, but I'm just going to express these various levels of conditions just to acknowledge how we are so vulnerable as human beings in this life. The situations around us, economically, politically, militarily, agriculturally, each one continually affecting another. The environment, the elements of the earth, air, fire, water, endlessly interacting with one another. There's floods and droughts and little typhoons and big ones, while IMS was having a little one here. We were having kind of a big one in Hawaii. It went by fast. But all of these places where we can feel vulnerable are happening around us. Of course, there are beautiful weather patterns that we've been experiencing here. That, that's not to be denied. But still, it's all in flux. We don't know, um, you know what we're going to be facing day to day on just even the microscopic level. We open to the vulnerability of our bodies, affected by aging, affected by health, what we eat, how we eat, how the mind affects the body, how the body affects the mind. So in the mind here, we begin to notice the habit patterns that have gone unchecked in life. And this is a very difficult thing to open to when you get quieter, as we've all noticed today in your practice one way or another, you kind of drop down into another level of reality that you don't get to see in daily life because we're not so busy doing, you know, our to-do list is really short here. (laughs) I mentioned before, you know, the water bottle, the bulletin board. We feel and we see those places that we don't see in everyday life. And it's really painful to, to see that. Places in ourselves that we ignore. And they're, they're kind of shouting out to be acknowledged. You know, it's one of the little children of our lives saying, Hey, pay attention to me. You haven't seen me. And I've been here for a long time. And... I just want to be acknowledged and touched and say, yes, you're here too. So we feel overwhelmed and surprised but how deep and how unrelenting it is sometimes. These habit patterns of greed, hatred, and delusion driving our lives. And yet, when we see them, there's this, if, if you've been able to really touch them or have... Um, Awareness reflected really clearly. There's some great relief. There's some great fulfillment that that's happening. It's like, ah, you know, this place has been open to. It's not been seen, really seen, for a long time. So this is dukkha. This is the reality of life. This is what we're opening to here, and it takes a lot of courage for us to do that. To be aware is good, but we need something to support that awareness and to make awareness even more effective and even more powerful, and that is compassion. We're learning or training ourselves to open to, to come close to, not to run away from, but to stay with, even momentarily, this vulnerability that we open to as human beings. 
the experiences that are painful and even joyful in the body, in the mind, and we just see them kind they're so vulnerable, even the beautiful ones go away. It's nice when the painful ones go away, but they come back again. So we begin to get close enough with compassion because compassion doesn't shy away from what's difficult. It's one of the four Brahma-viharas. The Brahma-viharas are the divine abodes. They're not abodes or places of abiding outside of ourselves. They're abiding places within our own hearts. So the one we've been practicing during this week is called loving-kindness. That's the base, the baseline, the basic one of the Brahma-viharas. When... Uh, loving-kindness or metta turns to suffering, the aspect of compassion comes out of that loving-kindness. So the ability for this loving-kindness, this tenderness, this friendliness, this gentleness to be able to touch what's difficult, this is compassion. It's the kind of transformation of loving-kindness that faces suffering just straight on and it doesn't back down. So there's this ability, because it's supporting awareness, it's being able to recognize clearly what's going on with us. Because the support to awareness, that clear kind of mirror or reflective nature of the mind that can reflect clearly what's happening, this, this compassion stays with it, accompanies it and helps it to remain there. Maybe it's just momentarily, but it's enough time to really see things as they are, more deeply, more clearly, more completely, to recognize what's going on. And then to allow what's going on to be there so that there's no pushing away because I'll I'll explain in a while, but the opposite of compassion is cruelty. Cruelty pushes things away or it makes us turn away from what's going on because it's too difficult to face. So there's this allowing to be so that this unfolding, this untangling of those deep karmic knots or psychophysical knots within us can just begin to untangle, unfold and show itself every strand bit by bit. So there's this recognition, this allowance that takes place, this ability to really take interest in what's going on instead of backing off and shying away, the ability to get close and say when, when you look at something or when, say, a, an insect comes by our path and it doesn't, it looks kind of scary in Hawaii, we have these awful centipedes. You know, they're really long and they're pretty fat, like two, two thumbs fat. And if they bite you, it really hurts for a long time. And so when they come along, you, it's sort of like you, you want to go away. You kind of want to run away from them. But when you see that kind of stuff in your own heart, you know, that's what you want to do you see kind of like a creature in your heart that looks really scary. And so you close down, you turn away, or maybe you, you, know, get, you get your slipper and kill it or something. <laughs> so, but of course here, you know, non-harming, that's a precept we take. And luckily we don't have any centipedes here. So um, here in... in and within our hearts, we're able to see those, whatever those creatures are, and to be able to take interest in them, and to look closely and say, what is this? And really have taken interest in it instead of being afraid, shying away, killing it, avoiding it, all of those things that we might do. Then we're able to relate to it as nature, as a natural, whatever's coming up in our hearts, as a natural unfolding of what has accumulated in this body-mind continuum because of the laws of cause and effect. 
what we've gone through in this lifetime, all the imprints in our minds, in our hearts, what that has caused the body to do, the mind to do, you know, these karmic imprints that we have. And not just in this life, but if your mind could expand even previous and previous births. And we call it nature because this natural unfolding, when we see it that way, when the mind can see it that way, it doesn't take it personally. It's, it, there's this ability to come really close, to take interest and to say, this is okay, this is interesting to see this. And we don't put upon it some kind of judgment or some kind of blame or fault ourselves for seeing this whatever it is in ourselves that needs to unfold. So it's not judged negatively, it's just seen as it is. It allows awareness to do its job to see things as they are. So I came across this beautiful um, writing by Mark Nepo. And all of these things, you, if you listen to the Dharma talk again, you know, I hope you do on Dharma Seed, you can, you can get, write these names down later. Don't bother your mind with trying to want, want these uh, things. It's kind of what we call Dharma greed. You know, just <laughs> let your mind rest. You can listen and write it down and Google it and you'll, you'll find it <laughs> online. So Mark Nepo went through his own deep challenges as he journeyed through a health crisis that he had, a crisis of life and death. And he went through a lot of pain, all kinds of pain in the body, in the mind. And this poem touched me deeply. Having loved enough and lost enough, I am no longer searching, just opening, no longer trying to make sense of pain, but being a soft and sturdy home in which real things can land. These are the irritations that rub to a pearl. So it's through our practice here together that we give ourselves the opportunity to turn those irritations into pearls of wisdom. It's that compassion that's coming close to and kind of rubbing against whatever is being felt, whatever new thing is being known, whatever creature of our hearts, minds that we are, were unable to face before we can now face again because of compassion. And that can turn into wisdom. And that wisdom then helps compassion to even get stronger. And so one another, they both help one another to deepen and to strengthen. Trungpa Rinpoche, a great Tibetan teacher, said and described compassion as facing reality with a noble heart. A noble heart. Sometimes compassion is described as the quivering of the heart that allows us to come close to suffering that allows us to open to suffering, the quivering of the heart. This is the noble heart. It gives us a courage to face that first noble truth and what that really means. If it weren't for compassion, we would not be able to even open to the four noble truths, which was the Buddha's turning of the wheel of the Dharma. It gives us the courage to understand And this is the first noble truth. In Pali, it's called dukkha satcha. And that doesn't mean as wrongly translated in the West. Life is suffering. I mean, what a way to invite people to the Dharma. (laughs) um, So it means really, there is the truth of suffering. There is the truth of suffering. So what the Buddha started out with is to say the truth. And as teachers and guides were so thankful to our own teachers that didn't back down from this truth, that didn't keep it hidden away because it's, you know, it wouldn't be nice to say that to people. But to have the lion's roar, as the Buddha said, and to be able to say 
the truth of how things are. So he made this the first noble truth. There is the truth of suffering. Let's not avoid that. Let's not ignore that. Let's really face it. And this is one of the first ways that I really respected the Dharma, the Dhamma, because it started out with what is true instead of, you know, how I could change. But to really look at things in this way. So compassion is a capacity to connect with that truth. So difficult within ourselves to see those difficulties within ourselves, not to avoid it, not to close down, but to bring the power of kindness, which is what compassion is. It's kindness turning towards difficult states of mind, of body, not just within us, but also in other people, in other beings. So when the Buddha expanded more on the first noble truth, he mentioned the hallmarks of our basic vulnerability as human beings. Birth, the first one. When a child is born, you know, it's it's really, really painful to come through that channel and into this world. It's painful for the child. It's painful for the mother. I, I gave birth to four. And also, you know, father there, relatives there seeing the pain. A lot of times relatives are there now uh, paying attention to what's happening. Just seeing the pain is painful. So birth is painful. Aging is painful. Sickness and all the various manifestations of aging and sickness. Dying, the dying process and death. So these are all the hallmarks of our basic vulnerability. There's a lot of fear that comes with this. There's a lot of um, inability to face this kind of pain sometimes. So being with those we don't like also is painful, vulnerable. Being separated from those we love by death or in other ways wanting to have and to keep what's pleasant, but it goes away. Running away and avoiding what's unpleasant, but it stays longer than we want it to stay. And if it goes away, it comes back again, or we fear that it may come back. So I don't want to diminish all the beauty in our lives. That's to be enjoyed as well. But that changes too. It doesn't last. Sure, other joys come up and they are to be experienced fully, but they also go away. So there's this great vulnerability that we're constantly living in and all of this is undeniable. So our inner responses to those conditions are usually some kind of aversion, fear, attachment, maybe in the form of despair or grief, anxiety. Or maybe we don't want to face it. The huge thing that really feeds um, the suffering in the world is ignorance. We're constantly running towards what is more pleasant to be with. So we don't let ourselves, allow um, ourselves in many cases to open to what's difficult. And there's those deep, strong habit patterns over and over again that the mind falls into, the trenches of the mind. Um, One of my friend's students uh, calls it the cow paths of the mind. You know how I live um, around a um, lot of fields, pastures around my home and uh, a lot of cows are around and you can see sometimes the deep ruts they make because they go through those same that same path all the time so that's what's happening in our habit patterns because they're not checked you know they're deeper and deeper trenches so they they easily fall into them but with our practice actually 
of metta, of the loving kindness, more practice of compassion. Uh, We have gratitude practices also in the world and um, we take refuge. All of these things that we do here, plus uh, really the most powerful one is the power of awareness because we're encouraging the mind all the time to just be aware the, the, the most powerful, um, wholesome quality of the mind, awareness. So that if we make that a habit pattern, the mind will easily go there. So we're learning and understanding the habit patterns so clearly, and sometimes it's hard to face them. Awareness is good, but it's hard to face them. I love this um, quote by Mark Twain saying, self-knowledge is not always good news. You know, there's... So a long time ago, um, Carl Jung made a statement that set me straight on what I thought uh, a, a path of practice was. I had uh, thought about enlightenment being that, you know, all of a sudden I'd open to some great blissful state, which, you know, we can. There are practices in the Dharma that lead there, but they don't really purify the mind of greed, hatred, and delusion. You can be in great blissful states, uh, but we can also get really attached to them. This path of practice in the Dharma is a path that leads to the purification of greed, hatred, and delusion. And so as the mind gets more and more purified, And during that time, we need to open to many places that are difficult to open to. So this statement by Carl Jung said, Enlightenment doesn't mean envisioning bodies of light, but making the darkness known. Making the darkness known. Really turned my mind around about the importance of this path of practice that we really, we really can't go around or over or skip it. We really have to go through. So this darkness, the unknown, meaning those inner attitudes that have been hidden from our view for a long time because of so many reasons, ignorance, aversion to them, or attachment to the pleasant. So... It's hard to face them because, mainly because we don't have enough inner resources enough to give us a sense of safety and strength to be with those places, to open to those places. So compassion is that sense of strength. It's that sense of safety that it gives us. When I looked up the word compassion in the etymological dictionary, it broke it down to the first part, C-O-M, calm means together. And passion is suffering, actually. It's not the kind of passion we translate in the, in the West as that kind of ardor to be with things we love. This is passion, suffering, meaning suffering. That comes from the Latin. And so it means to connect with, to come together with, to connect with suffering. This is compassion. And this takes a lot of courage. Courage, again, from the Latin, comes from that word core, C-O-U-R. And sometimes what it feels like is like a strength of heart. It doesn't feel like a weakness. It feels like this ability to really lead into life from our heart. Not just trying to figure everything out and go around the obstacles and... Um, avoid what we need to avoid, but to really face what we need to face from our heart centers. It's a willingness to allow parts of ourselves we are not proud of to be known and have humility for those parts, not to be humiliated by them. This is not a sense of humiliation, but a sense of humility to really be able to open to them. So compassion includes the strength to have humility, to open to feelings like failure and shame, racial prejudice, 
disdain for people we consider different, addictions and phobias, to let it all be known and to touch it with kindness. Because maybe if we can touch those places of kindness within us, we can touch those experiences also in the world with kindness instead of with disdain or hate or aversion or attachment to how we think it should be. So we need to touch these places with courage, but also with gentleness. And that gentleness includes that humility. So not to be humiliated by them, but to come to a place of being humble, to be able to see them. So we need to give ourselves a lot of this care, this tenderness of compassion, and space to do this in our own time here. Each one of you have your own way of unfolding. It's, it's interesting for all of us um, as guides on the path here, as your spiritual friends, to be able to really sense what's going on with you as an individual. And not because you're, you're some, um, you know, statistic, but because you are uniquely you and how you're unfolding and to be able to say, right now you need some rest. Go have a cup of tea and drink it mindfully. Right now, really open your heart with courage to what's going on with you. Or maybe right now, be outside. Let yourself get entrained by nature. Or maybe right now, really face that pain in the body. So it's, it's really wonderful for me to be sensitive to each one of you as an individual. And, I, and I, I really believe that's how each one of us feel. And it's so good that there's different ones of us to help you because each one of us has a particularly beautiful different angle on the Dharma. And we can give you different things, different understandings. I really appreciate when I hear Mark's angle on this and Deb's angle on that and Vance on another thing and it really helps to kind of let my mind grow really big and to be more sensitive to subtleties. So slowly, you know, we give ourselves time and patience. So I love this saying. Now this came from a tea box. (laughs) Um, From the Findhorn Garden. Flowers unfold slowly and gently, bit by bit, in the sunshine. And a heart, too, must never be pushed or driven, but unfold in its own perfect timing to reveal its true wonder and beauty. So opening is what we're doing to these psychophysical knots, to these, like, karmic ways that things are entangled in the body-mind continuum. Um, This tangle of experience. This is what's disentangling. And during this time of disentangling, sometimes we, you know, we get a little recess and we get to enjoy some kind of bliss or pleasant feeling. And then something else starts to unfold and it's unpleasant. And maybe it's really painful or maybe it's terrifying and then we think this isn't good you know it's supposed to be the other way but actually if it were the other way all the time you would never learn anything actually you would just want more and more and more of it because that's the way the mind works until you actually see attachment so when the, these knots unfold and there are difficult places to open to, this is good. When we would go into our teachers and, you know, we would, in the first we'd have this kind of beginner's luck and it would be wonderful and beautiful and then it would start being all painful, our teachers would really be happy for us, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Finally, <laughs> you're really reaching the true dharma, not just hanging out in, in what's easy. And so by allowing it to unfold, then awareness 
accompanied by compassion, can really be with it and see its true nature. So in one difficult retreat, just to give a story and an example, uh, we like to tell stories because then you wake up a little more. <laughs> so um, this was right here in the dining room and I was doing a long course here. And uh, it was so difficult. It was one of those times in the body and the mind that was relating to the body that I felt like I, I couldn't go on. I felt like everything was being torn apart. And it was. And um, so what I would do is get a cup of tea. Um, I'm just wondering whether everybody's going to do this now. <laughs> I would get a cup of tea and I'd put it on on one side. You know, I'd walk down the, one of the lengths of maybe two tables, like half of the dining room, and I'd always love to be near the window. And so I'd put my teacup there and I'd, it would be so hard that I would just walk back and forth, but I knew at one end there'd be a cup of tea. So I could do it. You know, I could go do my lifting, placing, stepping, turn around, and there'd be the cup of tea. Okay, seeing, you know, delight, and then lifting, placing, stepping, and then seeing what other dukkha was in the mind and continuing on. So that would happen, you know, just giving myself a little bit of a break. And then it got really, really hard one time. So I thought, now I was, you know, this is about 30 years ago, maybe. So then I thought, maybe I'll get another cup of tea. <laughs> I'm more mature now. I wouldn't do it anymore. So I put it at the other end. I only did this one time. So I decided it was really too much. It was, a, you know, I'm the greedy type. So put it at the other end. And so then I knew, oh, I would have to walk a shorter distance before I'd have that cup of tea. And sometimes we're looking for this relief, this little bit of relief, you know. Compassion can give us that relief. It's just that ability to bring a tenderness to us in the moment. Same as the tea. So sometimes I would need to remind myself, you know, to bring a tenderness to the moment, to just maybe a soft mental note of gentle, you know, just to remind myself, just to be gentle with this moment. Just be gentle. And um, my daughter, who did a couple of teen retreats here, she, um, this one story I remember, we're driving, I was driving her to school, and she had taken this teen retreat here. And, um, and I was not happy because we were late and there was traffic and everything. And so she could tell I wasn't happy. So she looked at me and she said, soft, gentle note, mom. <laughs> soft, gentle note, anger, anger, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so you can remind yourself to be gentle by just in the tone of your note, in the tone that you give yourself uh, at the time. So one of the phrases of compassion, which um, I think uh, Deborah opened to uh, or mentioned today, and we'll bring more about it tomorrow. Uh, compassion is using a phrase that really acknowledges the suffering. So it doesn't back away from it. So the phrase may be something like, may I open to this pain with tenderness. It's sort of setting intention in the mind and really living in that intention. So you can open to whatever's going on, mind-wise, body-wise, um, with tenderness, with gentleness, acknowledging the pain. So that the energy is felt centered in the awareness with compassion. It's not lost in the pain. It's not jumping in the pain like it jumps in a river and gets carried away by it. So the near enemy of compassion, it's called the near enemy because it can seem like compassion. And this is part of the terrain 
of compassion. This near enemy is a, a grief, not the healthy kind of grief that allows a, you know, one to face the loss uh, over and over again, but it's sort of an overwhelming grief. It can be a pity, pity for another, pity for oneself. Just to know self-pity sometimes is, has been a great truth showing to me. And it, it's hard to see that in oneself, especially when we're, you know, a little proud. But to see, oh, we're feeling sorry for ourselves. Sometimes it's so much so that we feel dragged down by it. We can't see clearly. It's like drowning in grief. It doesn't, um, it's not strong. It, it's not effective. So there's an ancient story in the scriptures about someone sinking in quicksand and out of overwhelming grief and pity, someone jumps in to help, but then also sinks. But if we can have a sense of compassion at the side, compassion and courage, and have the wisdom to know what can we do, we can find a stick, for example. We can put it there nearby and say, hold on and I'll pull you out from my stance of compassion and wisdom, not from jumping in with a lot of grief, overwhelming grief. So if you feel like you're sinking or overwhelmed, unable to come to that strong kind of kindness and courage for yourself, it's helpful to, during those periods of time, it's skillful means to turn towards something that you can get some a little bit of recess. This is just skillful means. Open your attention to hearing something in nature. Hearing, hearing. Or open to some senses in the body. Smelling or seeing. Keeping your eyes open. Kind of keeping a wide um, berth. Giving that pain a wide berth. Once I was um, with my daughter and the eldest daughter in the hospital and she had just undergone some surgery and um, she didn't get her pain medication in time and, you know, there was a shift of nurses so she was really in pain and I'd been with her for a few days and it was really difficult for her and for me, being tired, but of course a lot more difficult for her. So... I was um, kind of leaning against the wall, hospital wall, and she was over there saying, Mom, it's so painful. I, I really need to get some medicine. Please help. And I was so tired, and I was leaning against the wall, and I was starting to kind of slink down and say, Okay, I, I'll try. I'll try to go get it. And I was just feeling like I was in pity, a lot of pity for her and not knowing what to do. And so she said, she reminded me, she said, Mom, I need you. Don't go there, you know. Could you just be strong for me right now? And so I realized I had to get myself together and really face what was going on. So sometimes it's like that with ourselves, you know, needing to face the pain in our own hearts. So the far enemy of compassion, it's called the far enemy because you can see it from afar, is cruelty. It's more active. It's strong. It's very aversive energy. It pushes away. It strikes out at what's painful. It strikes out with our body sometimes in really awful cases. It strikes out with our words sometimes, or our attitudes of mind, even when we're not doing or saying anything, we can feel that anger, and other people can too, that ill will, that blame, that shaming of others or ourselves, that resentment. And so their energy is used up, and there's little left to do something helpful in this place of the far enemy, because the middle path is compassion, Sometimes it can swerve to cruelty. Sometimes it can swerve to pity or overwhelming grief. So it's helpful to know uh, how it can be like this, how it can 
um, you, you think you're in the middle ground, but it's so painful that you start striking out at it. That's cruelty. Or you really close down inwardly. That's uh, pity. So watch how that goes for yourself. Uh, Someone really close to me was physically hurt by someone else really close to me. And I was really alarmed and felt very protective because this was a child. And so I felt a lot of anger. This was many years ago. A lot of anger in my heart. And I could see, of course, from seeing my own anger, really being honest with myself, I could see a lot of anger... (coughs) towards the perpetrator. And then I could also realize this is what that person was feeling in that person's heart. And so it was interesting that we can connect with another person because we see that very same defilement in our own hearts. We can connect through the honesty of realizing this is what it feels like just as this person may feel it, and did that action out of that place of anger, this too can happen within me. And of course, you know, what we're training in here is not to act it out with our words, our behavior. If it comes up in our thoughts, we learn to see it and not to let it have a toehold in us, but just to do, let it do its thing to arise, to burn up in the mind, and to pass away without taking any action. So I was able to open to my own propensity towards cruelty because I did want to hurt. I knew I, knew I wouldn't do it, even at that time. I knew I wouldn't hurt, but it felt like it. And so it was that empathy, that ability to be in the experience of another, and then to really understand. It said that empathy is a precursor to compassion. Because we can, we can feel, we may be able to feel how other people feel. We don't have to condone the action or the behavior. We can know right from wrong, what hurts, what leads to suffering. And that we know clearly. But we don't have to condemn the person or keep that person out of our hearts. Of course, that person too needs understanding, not making the action right, but still staying open to that person. It's hard to do that, but it's possible. So it can be healing for all concerned And what happens is when we don't act it out and when we don't say the cruel words or we don't do that, you know, let that um, anger that's leaking all over the place get out there, then there's a lot of healing that takes place. And those seeds are not being dropped back into our karmic stream that will come up again and we'll have to face over and over again. So this compassion manifests as a spontaneous offering of kindness rather than withdrawal. When someone we see in stress or emotional or physical stress, it allows us to connect with them and to know we know how it feels in ourselves. And somehow we're able to reach beyond aversion and separation and experience our deep connection with all beings. We may not be able to do something with that person in that moment, but maybe there'll be a time we'll be able to forgive. So how compassion is a powerful force in connecting with others? Now, how is compassion a powerful force in connecting with ourselves very deeply? Well, all throughout this connection with others, we're paying attention to ourselves. But here in retreat, there's something very, very rare going on. We're really looking deeply into the power of compassion with our own hearts and minds. 
the tenderness of compassion relaxes the the attention around the body, around the heart field. And there's less reactivity, naturally. There's an ability to really go close. So awareness has a strong support of compassion. And awareness's job is just to reflect with pristine clarity what's going on, happening beneath the surface of things. So what happens beneath the surface of conceptual or relative reality, what seems so solid and concrete, reflects, we get the reflection of more ultimate reality. We see beneath the surface of solidity. We see the basic processes and systems taking place. So it takes the awareness beyond or before the defining lines of this body, before or beyond the defining lines of what we think of me or mine or who I am. What we call body becomes quite intangible. Some of you have already experienced how um, something in the body can arise, pain in the body, and then in time, just being with it, being with it, being with it, it just becomes hardness, softness, bumpiness, tingling, warmth, pressure, coldness, lightness, those kinds of things. And these various sensations start to fall away. You can see the arising, the changing, and the passing away of it. And during this time, the mind is not overlaying or gobbling together any concept of that, oh, this is my leg, or this is me, or this is mine. There is no concept being overlaid upon it. It's just this energy system doing its thing over and over again. So this sometimes that is seen, and then sometimes the very changing nature of its scene. It kind of goes on a deeper level and just sees the, like Deborah was saying the other night, that just the disappearance of it. All of us, it arises and it disappears all of a sudden. So it, it really sees through the solidity of it, the ephemerality of it, the dissolving nature is known, the insubstantiality of the body becomes known. This is kind of filling out a little more what Deborah was talking about the other evening about anicca and dukkha and anatta. Anicca impermanence, dukkha, the unsatisfactoriness, and anatta means the selfless or coreless nature of everything. So the unfolding nature at this level of experience begins to be seen so succinctly, the subtlety of these systems deeply are seen, these processes. Everything arising, changing, dissolving in this realm. Nothing to hold on to. It's all changing. How can we say that anything's permanent? How can we say that there's satisfaction that's going to last forever? It's impossible when we see things happening at this realm. And again, it's not to diminish that there are pleasant experiences. That comes together too. But those are also seen as ephemeral. So in this realm of uh, what we call body, that's happening. But also in the realm of what we call mind. It's so powerful, yet so ephemeral. It seems solid because we're always putting this concept of this is my mind, this is my thought, this is my intention, this is my knowing, this is my perception. But when that, that concept isn't overlaid on it anymore, it's just seen as this is a pleasant experience, this is unpleasant, this is a neutral experience, this is just perception, this is just an intention. This is just knowing, arising and passing away. No labels at all putting on it. So it's this closeness and this sensitivity to what's happening over and over and over again. And awareness has the power to reflect clearly how it appears, how it changes, how it disappears. 
Sometimes it happens so fast that there's can't catch up with kind of noting it, so you can't even note it anymore. It's just known. So nothing is permanently satisfying because it's impermanent and it's unreliable. And so this deep knowledge gets sort of taken in as wisdom in the mind and the heart. Nowhere, even in the mind of these various things, these um, pleasant, unpleasant experiences, perception, intentions, or knowing, this is what kind of comprises the mind. Nowhere in that, in, the, in this moment-to-moment experience of what's going on, can you possibly overlay a sense of self because it, it, it's, just too, it's just like throwing a rock in a pond. So this understanding of the sense of no self begins to, under, begins to be deeply understood. This wisdom factor kind of um, really deepens in in this body-mind continuum. From afar it can seem so solid, but underneath the surface it's not. And so this deep wisdom, because of compassion, begins to develop. It's just the flow of experience and the awareness of it. Just the breath, the sensations of the body and the awareness of it. Just the hearing and the awareness of it, the tasting and the awareness of it, the smelling and the awareness of it, the seeing, the awareness of it, the moods of the mind, the thought processes and the awareness of it. Just these elemental experiences and the bare attention to each one of them, moment by moment by moment. Bare attention meaning it's free from all hindrances. There's no filters, there's no nothing, no defilement in there. It's just really clear. So there's this vividness of an unfiltered life being seen clearly and deeply. And as human beings, there is this experience of our lives from a fuller place of understanding, a more complete place of understanding. And we begin to live our lives knowing this completely. And this spiritual maturing takes place What happens during this time is there is this integration of compassion and wisdom. There are these two understandings that come together and that are held together with great respect. That there is this relative world we live in where there is this sense of self. There is a self, a sense of self. In this we have to relate to this body-mind continuum in that way. That's a relative way of dealing with it. But there's also, on the ultimate level, there's also, we also see this deep sense of corelessness, of the ephemerality, of the impermanence, of the unsatisfactoriness, this uncontrollability um, of life. So we live with these two understandings together. Yes, hidden to everyday life, in everyday eye, when we investigate deeply, there are just these collections, this flow of changing experience. This is wisdom. The body, perception, feelings, consciousness, intention. Yet there's also on the relative level of life, we must integrate that too. There's this being that has certain ways of being that relates to others and it would there would be much more harmony if we if we related much more peace if we related with wholesome states of mind so we need to bring those two together the relative level compassion where we connect with one another supports the connection much more deeply on the ultimate level One of our great teachers in Hawaii, Aiken Roshi, a Zen teacher, said, when we hear about no self and think it's wrong to have a self in order to uh, be a practitioner in the Dharma, um, 
we may think that it's wrong to have a self as a being a practitioner in the Dharma. But on a relative level, we must respect that there is a self. This self can be an agent of good in this world. And so the, the integration of compassion and wisdom is so, so important to have both of those coming together in our lives, those two wings of the Dharma. So we can be and feel the safety of living with this sacred union of wisdom and compassion. Not confused, fuller, nourishing ourselves with the wisdom. So I'd like to end with this quote by Padmasambhava, a great Tibetan yogi, said, This, though my view is as vast as the sky, still my conduct is as refined as barley flour. So that's wisdom and compassion. So let's sit together for a moment. Thank you for your kind attention. Time for walking.